All right. Welcome to another Pro Football Doc podcast. Very exciting special guest. What I love about the off-season podcast is that I really get a chance to do some deeper dives. Last week, uh, our podcast, you know, we chatted at length with Chris Long, longtime NFL great, unique perspectives. And today's guest, which the whole first segment will be uh, uh, dedicated to, before we get to some other fun things, a uh, lot of good topics in the second half from my guy to the best guy to uh, what happened here, et cetera. But before I do that, this is my favorite portion. And this was the number one guest I wanted to have on because I wanted to learn more about this gambling world myself in terms of what's going on. And for full disclosure, um, I, I guess, am the official FanDuel injury expert. And my next guest here is John Sheeran. He is, for FanDuel, the director of trading, or I call him just the guy in charge of... <laughs> of the sports book, the Grand Poobah, Director of Trading, I guess is his official title. So welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm excited to be here, Doc. appreciate you having me on. Um, as you said or alluded to, we use, I guess, a lot of your insight week to week on uh, injuries, and it's great to get your perspective. Definitely gives us, a, I guess, an added level of context that we, uh, to that point, would have been kind of very, very subjective and the world that we live in is very much um, trying to get away from subjective narrative and deal more in facts. So I think uh, your expertise has been a big help to us. So I'm, I'm excited to spend some time here. <laughs> well, that's interesting. And I'm flattered that you uh, follow along, but like we haven't really chatted, talked, and it's not like I give information to you before I tweet it out or put it on our website. You're literally getting it from public consumption. Yeah, obviously you, you you contribute on the show that I do as well with more ways to win during yes. and so we get some of it through that. But like you said, the vast majority of everything that you share and um, that we consume is done actually after you've released it to the public. Um, I just don't know how much you know attention some odds makers are making to it, and you know particularly in a world where key injuries are so valuable in line moves in the NFL week to week and day to day, where we get you know. As you well know, you've been responsible for putting them out there as general quotes and meeting certain criteria in terms of sharing the information. But to get the behind behind the scenes view has been uh, really important, and I think a, a step forward in terms of our the way that we've been able to assume whether or not players are going to participate at the weekend. Well, thanks for that. Totally unplanned, but for uh, I mean, there are some that have uh, accused me or said, well, you like, you know, giving it to people first or whatever. So you're getting it at the same time. And so uh, the free information you're getting on Twitter and Pro Football Doc is where the great John Sheeran running FanDuel is getting it. So uh, that's pretty good. I, I, I appreciate that. So, John, on one of the shows that we're mutually on, on different times, I heard you say, and I want, it, I want people to hear it on their own. The average guy says, the line moves because either you're trying to balance your book or because some whales come in on one side and, you know, et cetera. But you said something very interesting about injuries on some of these shows. Tell us, tell us, I want to hear people to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, on injuries and the effects of the line. Yeah, look, I kind of alluded to it in the earlier comment when, you know, 
I think there's a misconception out there in general as to why um, bookmakers move their lines. I think some of it has been historical in terms of what Las Vegas has done. And there's definitely, I guess, more of a strategy there for book, uh, bookmakers and, and for casinos and, and co big companies like that to, to you know, reduce their exposure when it comes to sports betting. We all know that it's only a small part of the pie for the vast majority of those big casinos in Las Vegas in particular. And I think they kind of saw sports betting as a bit of an amenity for the visitors to come and they would just play on the weekend. And, you know, they really wanted to avoid in a lot of scenarios, you know, major loss and exposure, as I alluded to. So, you know, for me at least, um, and for our perspective, we don't really operate that way. We believe that we try and set as accurate a line as we can. And for this, I'm speaking more to the core markets and effectively take money on both sides. And, you know, we've had high profile examples where it's been heavily biased to one side and we're still offering the best number in the marketplace. The Patriots Super Bowl uh, a couple of years ago uh, would be the perfect example against the, the Rams when we offered one and a half and the vast majority of the world was minus two and a half and we had 96% of the money for Brady and those Patriots. So that was a good example of us putting something into action that we had spoken about and that I've spoken about a lot. I think when it comes to line moves week to week in general, and we saw this particularly in the postseason, lines don't move an awful lot. We have an awful lot of information. We know where the market uh, rates these teams. And, you know, aside from a key injury here or there, you won't see a lot of movement. And we saw that the entire way through the postseason, the most re recent NFL season. I think the one caveat to that and the obvious one is injuries and trying to ascertain whether or not certain players are likely to play. And I think, you know, getting injury information, for, particularly from a doctor who's worked in that sphere specifically, it's really insightful for us because historically, I think people would have got that information ahead of the market being aware of it. So, for example, Drew Brees, we all know now that he played actually very injured in the last game in the postseason when they got beaten. And you know, in hindsight, we saw a line move against them where somebody actually had access to that information. That might be a good edge case um, for where that information is valuable and is one of the key contributors to line moves. So, yeah, I think it's super important. And like I said, probably, at least in the postseason, meaningful games, definitely one of the kind of key contributors as to why the line moves, not necessarily action. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I'm in California, John, so it's not legal gambling, but I just try and follow along and trying to learn. And um, one of the things I started playing with the second half of the year is coming off a regular season game on Sunday, by Sunday night, doing an early line mover saying, here's some key injuries, they're not going to play. And and uh, the early lines are at least a little more volatile, right? I mean, the, the playoff lines aren't that volatile. Super Bowl lines aren't that volatile. But week to week, the lines on Sunday night that get released and Monday morning are a little bit volatile, especially when the first injury report really comes Wednesday. And maybe the coaches may or may not say something on Monday. There's some, there's some advantages to be had. Uh, and, and there were a couple times we were able to predict not – based on the marketplace, because that's your world, but just based on the injury news that we think is coming based on the injury itself, which way it's going to move. And, and, and I think you're right. I think it does do that off of information. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a really good example in the postseason. You know, a lot of people got a really good number uh, on the Chiefs when Mahomes was taken out injured. And the initial, you know, some people made them a dog the next day and they've gone off four and a half point favorites or something. So, 
you know, if you're able to consume that information, I can't remember exactly what your opinion was. I believe from, from the top of my head that it was largely positive in terms of his chances to play the following week. You've got nearly five points of value if you're able to play that opinion straight away. So huge uh, opportunity and probably one of the biggest edges that there is left when it comes to trying to get closing line value in the NFL is being able to ascertain you know, the actual health of players week to week uh, when it comes to injuries, particularly in the kind of key skill positions. Yeah, and the other thing that we've tried to do, and the Super Bowl is a good example of it, was to look at Look, everyone knows when Patrick Mahomes has an issue, right? And has an opinion. And maybe my opinion could be a little different. And But there's so much information on a Patrick Mahomes, it's hard. But when it's a offensive lineman, like in the Super Bowl, and no question by the time the game went off, the media in general was saying both of the offensive tackles for the Chiefs are out. But if you looked at our injury index and the articles, I was saying it goes a lot deeper than that. They were at left tackle, a third, a third string, the third stringer, a second, third stringer at uh, left guard, a starting at center, third string right guard, third string right tackle, and the Eric Fisher injury went a lot deeper than just Eric Fisher being a former top draft pick out in Patrick Mahomes' blindside. When Fisher went down, Mitchell Schwartz had to flip over to left tackle. Mitchell Schwartz was the left guard after Kelechi Assembly was out. So he'd already been flipped to right tackle when Mitchell Schwartz went out. Now he's flipped to left tackle. Andrew Wiley at right guard, who was subbing for Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who opted out due to COVID, had to slide to right tackle. And so because of that, you had a third string right tackle, a third string right guard, and a second string left tackle. 60% of the offensive line changed starting their first game together in the Super Bowl, right? I mean, that's where the injury index, I think, comes into play. Not just the star injuries, but the domino effects in terms of where they are. Yeah, and I think that's really important context. It's one that we spend a lot of time trying to ascertain, right? It's, it's not just the injury of the player that's out. It's actually the relative difference in... Uh, yes performance capability to the backup whoever that is be it a second third string and like you said you know fundamentally a core unit for the offensive line for the Chiefs to be down 60% of their starters is in a game like that so incredibly important and, and we spend all of our time trying to figure out those ratings when we get injuries through the regular season trying to understand you know in terms of point value what is this player dropping down to the backup actually worth and and I think that's kind of the key point here is that, like you say, it's not just necessarily the, capa the, the capabilities of Mitchell Swartz. It's the fact that he's out of position twice and then you got to backfill his other position on the offensive line as well. And you know, I think we all saw the culmination in what that looked like. And between uh, Fisher for the Chiefs and Bakhtiari uh, for the Packers, I think the left tackles moving forward are probably in for a pretty decent pay rise. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and when you, there's two other factors to that. It's, it's three guys at new spots for the first time. Like if this happened in December, they might've gotten a couple games under their belt and then gotten used to it. This is the first time. And on top of that, the Bucks were getting healthy. 
with Vita Vea and obviously some other players that were coming back. So um, that's what, and especially, you know, obviously having two good rush ends um, and that was Green Bay's problem. Bakhtiari out, okay, you can chip that side, but then they expose the right tackle, right? And so, and here both sides were, were done. So it's a combination of things. And one of the things we're going to do next year, John, when we're working on the programming, if you look at our injury index, you've got the circles on offense, right? But then how do you, we're going to do what we call, what I call uh, stacking dolls. So on the right tackle for the Chiefs, there's going to be three circles almost superimposed on top of you to show that they're down to their third you know, as opposed to just the Delta. So we're, we're trying to do better too, as, uh, as we do our injury index, injury only uh, analysis in terms of, uh, in terms of what's, uh, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super important. And, and like we said, it'll be a useful tool for not just us, as we said earlier, not just odds makers, but also for betters to try to understand, you know, what the drop off is likely to be early in the week and try and take advantage of that and get some closing line value, which is what we all know is so important when it comes to making a few dollars through the regular season. Now you're, you're, you're from Ireland, right? Yep. And, and did you always followed NFL football like this, or this just all part of the learning process, you know, lines are lines and you can adapt or how does that work? Yeah. So like fundamentally, I guess to, to, to focus on the work elements of it, my background for odds making is pretty much centered around horse racing and um, particularly US horse racing by chance. So um, I think understanding the probabilities and the processes that I go through for setting odds on horse racing was somewhat transferable to the US sports when FanDuel started here back in the summer of 2018 in, in New Jersey. So I think at core, you're right. There's a process that you work through strengths that you have when it comes to you know, even analytical analytical performance, which isn't as kind of much of a requirement when you come to horse racing, but just understanding probabilities and the method around trying to establish what the true chance of something happening is that you can easily translate. When it comes to NFL specifically, I had, you know, always a huge interest in it going back to my early teens. At the time in Ireland, there was a show every week that used to show delayed coverage of the previous weekend's games on a Saturday afternoon. I just started watching that and you know, that was probably in the mid 90s and uh, you know got a feel for the game back then and, and kind of lost it a little bit later in my teens played a lot of soccer when I was young and focused on kind of sports that were important where I was living and working and uh, American football kind of fell back a little bit on by the wayside but uh, back then in my early 20s just gradually came back towards it and I've just always been amazed by the chess element. I love solving puzzles, which I guess is what odds making is and understanding the tactics and the chess moves between the offense and the defense and the structured nature of the game just really, really appealed to me from, from the start. So even when my two daughters were born, there was a lot of uh, late hours into the Sunday night and early Monday morning watching Sunday night football and, and trying to struggle to get up to work on Monday morning at what would have been 4 a.m. Eastern. Uh, just to kind of stay up and see the game. So always had a huge interest in it and just privileged to be working in the position I am right now and get to see more of it now than I probably ever will in my life. Now, the gambling marketplace in Europe in general is well ahead of the United States, right? The United States is still in its infancy. And what I'm told is the vast majority, 70, 80% of the money in Europe is in game, 
and in, in U.S. it's picking up, but it's not there yet with all the in-game wagers, which I actually think will make my injury analysis even more valuable because I don't know there are a lot of in-game sources. And I'm certainly first on the in-game analysis um, kind of deal. How long do you think before the U.S. marketplace might catch up to um, what Europe looks like? Look, I, th I think U.S. sports fundamentally set up exceptionally well for in-game. Um, they go on longer than most of the European sports, like soccer, which is 90 minutes. Uh, we can have baseball games for four to six hours, as, as <laughs> you well know. NFL games going on, going on for two and a half, three hours as well. So I think it sets up exceptionally well for in-game betting. What I can tell you so far is that we've seen a huge migration. I think American bettors have been quicker to grasp it. Um, than I even saw in Europe. And you're right, I think, you know, the NFL right now is probably something like 70-30 to pre-game. It'll definitely move significantly towards in-game. And you're right, I think the key point you touch on here is that in-game is the most difficult from our perspective. You know, there are certain games, certain situations within a game that we just can't plan for. Um, yes, we can run simulations in the model that will compare every time that the team have been up by X with the ball with X left when there's Y left on the clock and uh, and we'll get a general overview of what that price looks like. But there's absolutely specific examples where betters will be able to take advantage of good lines because of nuanced situational uh, information that they can have. And injuries are the biggest part of that as we've already spoken to. So, you know, if, if Drew Brees goes out because of that hit the day he gets the broken ribs, if you're very, very confident he's not coming back in immediately, then you're going to get a really good line before you see the next play from the offense for the Saints and you see he's not on the field, for example. So uh, and we have a strong plan and strategy to be up and offer lines as often as we can within a game. I believe we're absolutely first in the industry right now when it comes to downtime in the NFL during the game. We believe we have that under double digits, somewhere in the realms of 78% of the game where we actually have to suspend the market because of the leverage of the play. Um, a lot of our competitors are, you know, multiples of that behind. But, you know, when I offer a line as often as we do, particularly if you have an edge that's related to injury or personnel, key personnel being on or off the field, you'll be able to get a distinct advantage for sure. Well, in the uh, playoff game where Patrick Mahomes uh, went out, as soon as he went out, I think the line moved three and a half points in-game line. And I was watching it and I didn't want to rush because there was only, there was a small chance that he would come back. And uh, after a certain period of time, I believe I was clearly first by at least 10 minutes before there was any other TV broadcast uh, that said that he wasn't coming back. And then as soon as the TV broadcast said that, the line jumps to seven, seven and a half in game, right? It moved another three, four points. That is the, uh, potential advantage. What about how long do you think it will take or will it, it get there that the problem with in-game is because there's more risk, the, uh, the, the juice is higher. Is, when will that normalize? Just over time or how does that work? I think for all the reasons we spoke about, it's important for bookmakers to actually have more over and more vigorous or, or more juice as you call it. Um, because there's those situations where we just can't know all of the information, right? As you said, we're waiting for some degree of certainty as to whether or not Patrick Mahomes wants to be or is able to come back into the game. The interesting thing is at these moments in time, which are the hardest ones for us to price, 
that's when the interest is peaked from the consumer, right? Because they also want to understand, is he going to come back? What does the line say as it relates to whether or not he's healthy to come back on the field? And the truth is, as you say, we don't know that until we get information from the field. And that's why I think your information in real time is so important and probably something, if I'm honest, that we probably don't even consider enough right now when it comes to in-game because we're so consumed with consuming the live feed from the game, watching the game, trying to understand what's happening. So I think for all of those reasons, you will ha always have to pay slightly more overround when it comes to in-game wagering, just because there's so many unknowns from our perspective uh, and we need that you know, information. I think the key point, uh, Doc, is that you won't, you won't be aware of this, is that despite higher overround, our actual uh, hold percentage is smaller in uh, live betting than it is pre-game. And that's, again, I guess, another reference point and reason as to why you have to pay a little bit more to bet in-game. Got it, got it. And what about prop betting? Uh, one of the things I find that it's harder to predict an outcome of a game because a tip ball, this, that, you may have all the an analysis, right. But as I say, the ball's not round, right. A funny bounce, mm -hmm. someone recovers a fumble and all your analytics are right, but and your injury information is right, but you don't win because of that. And this is where I've been intrigued a little bit in the prop betting market. So for example, once again, in the super bowl, uh, I wrote it an outkick, but I hit eight out of the 10 props I picked and my number one, give me, was Patrick Mahomes over rushing yards. Because tacos. sacks don't count against the yardage. Scrambles do count for the yardage. And it was obvious to me there was going to be three, five, or more scramble opportunities more than normal. And he was going to hit the rushing yards. He hit it in the first quarter, halfway through the first quarter. When do you think Super Bowl-style prop betting will become a – daily in-game occurrence be it for sunday night football or the or the thursday game or whatever is that coming soon or is that still a ways away i mean i think it's there already uh we offer the same player performance related markets for every game in the season right through from the first week all the way to the super bowl i think the super bowl obviously has much more uh, what i would call embellishing content where we add props that are kind of return a kickoff for a touchdown thanks to Devin hester a million years ago that was the only time it's ever happened in a Super Bowl. People love to bet on those kind of high odds, high, high return, but realistically low probability of happening. When it comes to the markets that you discussed around, you know, Patrick Mahomes rushing yards, we offer them every week and we continue to invest heavily in that space. I mean, it's an area we want to own in the US. I think we do a good job so far in the NBA and the NFL in particular, where we offer more choice than anybody, any of the other operators when it comes to prop betting. But we believe that's the one area that hasn't reached saturation point. And like I said, you know, through products like Same Game Parlay, where, where you could actually combine those eight or 10 props that you reference and put them all on one docket and have a huge potential payout for a small interest, I think is why it really appeals to people. And, you know, we will, as I said, continue to invest not just in pregame, but also offering, we already do offer in-game for the NFL and the NBA and look to extend that to even sports like college sports, for example. Uh, and we will do that over the next few years on a kind of uh, priority order in terms of deliverable. So what you're saying is I need to move out of California and do New Jersey or something. <laughs> if, you, if, if, you, if, if you can consistently hit eight out of 10, then yeah, you need a career change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's end on this final fun question. I, I was out to dinner with some friends 
uh, a birthday dinner for one of the wives and and a bunch of the guys were talking about it and they were all fascinated by this the guy the streaker that made all this money i mean set the record straight real unreal wives tale i mean i, I didn't buy it but everyone else at the table was like oh it was really smart of the guy but give us the real story there yeah, look, I mean, we didn't offer that market. A lot of the regulators in the uh, regulated market in the U.S. won't permit anything that could be structured or schemed to be exploitable, right? So something that could be pre-planned, even when it comes to some elements of the game. Uh, so there's no way anybody in the regulated market was able to wager significant sums, if any sums at all, on a streaker being on the field. A lot of international bookmakers and you know, from my previous experience in Paddy Power in Europe, we would have absolutely offered markets like that. Uh, people absolutely did wager um, on those type of markets, but the limits because of the impact that one person can have on the outcome of that are so, so low. There's no way that, cu that customer was able to ever bet anything in the realms of what was reported. Um, but is it possible he had a wager on it? Absolutely. Um, you know, limits for, from my perspective, just to give you some context, we would offer, you know, a spread on an NFL game to a customer off the street in the realms of to win $30,000. Uh, for a market like that, the maximum we would take is somewhere in the realms of $500 to $1,000. So like I said, there's no way somebody was able to wager the amounts reported on, on something they were able to uh, settle themselves. Yeah. And everyone pulled off the uh, the length of the national anthem wager because the yeah. reporter right recorded it the the practice right and and the only one that I that I think is still potentially controllable is the color of the Gatorade because that's determined by the head athletic trainer that's that's the one insider job that I think is still out there. <laughs> we we get away with that one believe it or not because that person is actually under the integrity policy of the NFL because of their contract and that's why the regulators have deemed that one to be okay. I'll, I'll finish with a good story. We, we actually have uh, evidence in, in Europe, as I said, we offer a lot of these, uh, what we call novelty markets. And one year we offered um, who, who, who shot Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. Uh, and the first show, or the, the revelation was to be screened on a Tuesday in Ireland. And we offered 33 to one about Maggie. And we saw this customer running around lots of our shops, having a hundred euros on Maggie to shoot Mr. Burns. And, what had happened, unbeknownst to us, was that the show had actually aired on the Thursday in the US. <laughs> this customer had already seen the episode. So, um, yeah, we have precedent for laying bets on things that can be impacted by one person or the one person will know. So I guess um, limits for, for that reason are usually pretty low. Well, thank you so much, John. We could talk a lot and would love to have you back on uh, again and talk about other things. And appreciate you and everything you do and uh, your uh, insight to injuries and how it affects the, the betting marketplace. Uh, thank you so much. We'll take a quick break here and then we'll come back for part two of the uh, Pro Football Doc podcast. All right. Welcome to part two of the Pro Football Doc podcast for this week. Uh, great to have that inside look at the FanDuel Sportsbook with John Sheeran. Thanks for joining us again after the break here. I feel like this week we have a lot to talk about. The title of this part is my guy or the best guy, but we have a lot of things to talk about here. I feel like I've missed you guys. Last week I thought was an awesome podcast. Chris Long, I mean, we could have gone for hours. 
um, decided to make the whole podcast related to Chris Long and his opinions. But we missed out on some news and it worked out well for me. I did take a quick little vacation with the wife. So it uh, made life easier for me as well. So we got a lot to jam into this uh, part two here. And we're going to start with my guy or the best guy. And we'll touch on how the combines are being done. We'll touch on some of the COVID conclusions and good news going forward related to sports. And we'll talk about media and use the Tiger Woods example of a, how I do what I do, but B, how to sift through the misinformation, some of it that we've put out on some YouTube video and other things already. And then the ever popular what happened here, uh, which is uh, replacing our beast of the week in the off season, or this one could be a beast of the week uh, one as well. So let's get into it here. My guy or the best guy. Here's what I mean. We've all been, I think, in work situations or school situations where a teacher gives favoritism to a student or a boss gives favoritism to an employee or when a new boss comes in and maybe you've been working hard for a number of years and being quite successful in sales as an auto mechanic or whatever it is and you don't get the promotion or they bring in someone over the top of you because you just don't know that new boss or the new situation. And we're all human and we all succumb to that, I think. Heck, uh, when restaurants are open uh, and they're slowly opening up in California, you go in your restaurant, you kind of like your guy, your favorite waiter or waitress, right? Or as opposed to a new one. And that's good and that's uh, correct here. But I wanted to talk about the my guy or the best guy phenomenon here. And we know it happens in coaching, you know, the, you know, the rehires and, and the links and, and uh, so forth, who you know kind of thing. But it's even happening in the athletic training world some. We almost had something unprecedented. There's job changes every year, 32 NFL teams usually three, four, five, or six head athletic trainer jobs change hands. And we had none this off season until this last week. And I think we had none for a couple of reasons. One being, you know, how do you fire an athletic trainer who did double duty for a whole season, took care of the training room as always, but then was essentially the point man on a lot of the COVID protocol stuff. And that was a full-time job. And so I thought we'd get through the season without any athletic trainer changeover because of that reason. And we talked about it on a podcast, but now there have been two. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons have released uh, Marty Lazan and the Jacksonville Jaguars have uh, released uh, Scott Trulock. And uh, you know, that that was announced officially this morning by Tom Pelissaro. Full disclosure, and I'll, I'll look, I know Scott very well. Uh, I know Marty back from his days and in, in, with the Browns, but I don't know him as well. Scott, I know very, very well. Look, I would put Scott Trulock among the top athletic trainers out there. He's knowledgeable, he's academic, he has a great personality, he can get along with players, he's trusted by players. He's been in multiple different 
teams, including the San Diego Chargers as an assistant, then director of rehab in Tampa. Then he ran the program in North Carolina, and he's been with the Jaguars for quite a while. I don't think you can find a better athletic trainer out there. And I'm disappointed, yes, on a personal level for him that he has been let go. But, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the my guy or the best guy scenario. And by the way, Jeff, Jeff Ferguson, uh, who's taking his place, is, is excellent as well. So no, no slight there. At least they made a good choice. But here's what I mean, especially with athletic trainers, why my guy or the best guy is difficult. As an athletic trainer and in the training room, you have to have the trust of players. Players, if they don't trust you, will seek treatment outside, which then makes the rehab process a mess if there's not good communication. Players, if they don't trust you, won't give you the whole story. Either they'll, every time there's something not wrong with them, they'll make it into a bigger deal because they need to protect themselves, or perhaps they'll never tell you about small things that you can treat before they become big things because they don't want it on the report and they don't want you running up to tell their coaches what's going on. So I've been there for 17 years and it's a delicate balance. I can promise you there are things that a good athletic trainer doesn't relay to upstairs uh, and it keeps it in the family downstairs with the players. And the other thing is, and athletic trainers are one of the only members of the staff, sure, equipment guys. And yes, the training room usually is on the first floor, but usually they're quote, downstairs. The athletic training room, the training room is the closest to the locker room, pretty much always. And where we had it, and it's true a lot of places, you walk through the athletic training room to get to the weight room. So it's sort of a central hub and it requires a lot of bit of confidence and trust there. So there's no question that if someone's not doing their job, they deserve to be let go. And sometimes it's just not a fit. But here's my opinion having been there. And I don't know the inside situation with Jacksonville. All I know is here's an excellent athletic trainer. And from the outside, here comes a new head coach who is all powerful. Um, look, I don't personally know Urban Meyer, but I respect him. He's been successful a lot of different places. And I don't know the background story of how this all works and who made the decision. But one of the things I always say is like, think of this in your work situation. What message does it send if the well-loved secretary or assistant or the well-loved assistant store manager who works hard and is very dedicated gets let go by the new manager or general manager or boss it and gets switched and it turns out i mean i think there's potential repercussions to that i think the jaguars need to be careful and i'm sure they are because I think Jeff Ferguson's a good hire. He came from the 49ers. I think he's a very good athletic trainer as well. But you need to stay away from the my guy phenomenon, especially in the training room. Uh, you got to have the best. And I'd say this for doctors too. You can't, 
always get away with the hospital sponsorship doctor. You have to get the best doctor, otherwise you lose confidence. So I hope this is not happening in Jacksonville. I'm quite sure Scott Trulock will land on his feet. Uh, I'm sure he was treated with respect because he's done a good job for the Jaguars. I think he will land on his feet other places. Of course, you feel bad for anyone in their family when they end up having to move, et cetera. But I would caution teams to be careful about the my guy versus the best guy idea, because you want everyone to know that you want the best people, not just your people. Uh, look, it trickles down to position on the playing field. Are you going to bring in your linebacker as opposed to I'm the best linebacker and I'm going to lose my job? Those are some of the repercussions that happen. And I actually think structurally and culturally, and I, at the Chargers over my time, we were not that good for a number of years and there was a lot of turnover. I think it's really nice and symbolic almost when you retain someone who's not your guy, but who probably is the best guy who's been doing a good job. It tells the team that you have a meritocracy there. And that's probably a good thing. That's how you get the most out of people. So um, enough of that. Um, only two athletic tra trainer changes this year. Beware of my guy or the best guy. I think in all our own personal lives and, and in uh, football as well. All right, let's get to some other uh, news stories uh, here. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, Let's go over the combines. What's going to happen at the combines? Um, right, the combines would have passed already. Remember, this marks the one-year anniversary of COVID in the NFL. Last year, NFL got through the combines before COVID shut it down. So this actually completes the one-year cycle of the NFL dealing with COVID. And yes, COVID did get the combines this year. There was no combines. So if you want to go to this OutKick article, we outline what happens. Instead of 330 prospective draftees going to Indianapolis with all medical personnel and coaches and position coaches and scouts and the whole deal, instead, it is every team will have about 10 or 11 players to go over and uh, they'll do it virtually and they'll share that with everyone in the league. It'll be a virtual exam, Zoom, telemedicine, looking at studies, talking to players remotely. So every team will get 10 or 11 guys, in theory, regionally based, but clearly, you know, like the Browns are gonna probably get 10 Ohio State players, but the Rams and Chargers are gonna get 10 each and they're probably not gonna be just from LA, right? They're gonna be from different places just a numbers game. Then what will happen is that normally there's a recheck combines early April, right before the draft. In a normal circumstance of those 330, there'll be 40 or 50 or so guys that have pending issues coming off an ACL tear and surgery, coming off shoulder surgery, coming off, who knows, a hamstring strain or you know whatever it is. And teams wanna reevaluate them right before the draft, their progress. Though they will fly out for a recheck combine uh, first week of April, uh, that first weekend. This year, 
that recheck will be different. That will be in person. Each team is going to send probably two people, head athletic trainer and head team physician. And they're going to look at those 40 or 50 rechecks. But then my understanding is the top 100 players will go. So basically any projected day one or two pick, first round day one, day two is round two and three. So rounds one and three will all be required to go to what used to be the rechecks for a limited in-person exam. So teams get a better look at them. So we'll start talking about combines, free agent physicals, who's healthy, who's not. We'll go over all the quarterbacks from Tom Brady on down in their surgeries in the off season. We'll talk about Trevor Lawrence and his shoulder surgery in the upcoming weeks. But I wanted to cover that uh, a little bit right here in terms of what the process is. All right. Another thing that we talked about and uh, wanted to, to share with you all is that there was a nice study that I wrote about which actually the conclusion is some of the COVID heart fears were unfounded. I'm not saying COVID's not real. I'm not saying inflammatory heart disease or myocarditis as a result of COVID is not real. It is. But any inflammatory condition, including influenza, can result in myocarditis. There was initial fear, and I wrote that article, why the SEC was comfortable playing because of their screening initially and the Big Ten wasn't, but then they reversed course. And I think the good news here, and here's the home run sentence, the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, WNBA, and MLS, 789 professional athletes tested positive for COVID. A total of five had inflammatory heart disease, three with myocarditis and two had pericarditis. Look, thankfully, they were all okay and no long-term effects. And we don't know about long-term effects yet, right, fully, but so far we haven't seen it. So the incidence is lower than thought. Yes, one is too high, but what's the normal incidence? We can get into all of that. The good news is we haven't seen a lot of it across six pro sports. Uh, and that certainly is uh, good news not the full story, but good news. And uh, hopefully, look, uh, I hope you realize I've tried to provide some balance. I've said from the beginning that if you want zero tolerance, we shouldn't have played last football season. But if you're willing to undergo some changes and accept, accept some risk that we thought, I thought we could complete the football season, and we did. So that's kind of where it lies. Uh, look, if you think, if you want your own kid to have no risk for COVID, don't send them to school. Don't send them to any sports practices or team play. I have eight, eight and three-year-old, the eight-year-olds are involved in some pro sports programs. And I think the risk is small, but worth it. And of course we make sure that the sports that they're playing are doing it in the right way with rules to make sure there's no COVID. But anyways, just wanted to get that clear. The final topic before we get to what happened here and look at some video is this week uh, released a video on YouTube on 
three pieces of information or three lies from Tiger Woods about Tiger Woods, not generated by Tiger, but just media information. Uh, the third, I think, is the most egregious. The first two, I can understand. The first two were one, they said both legs were broken. Look it up in the media, that's what everyone said. But the reality was it was multiple fractures in the legs and it was all on the same leg in three, at least three different areas. But it got in the game of telephone misinterpreted to both legs. That got straightened out. And by the way, if you wanna see this video, go to my timeline or the Pro Football Doc YouTube channel on this special uh, video there. And maybe I'll put up the link or uh, my producer will put the link on the bottom of this or, or what have you. The second thing is that he had an early transfer to Ronald Reagan UCLA Hospital in Westwood. And that was a misunderstanding by the media. He was taken to the trauma center, Harbor UCLA, where I worked before uh, for the X Games, et cetera, Harbor slash UCLA. And I, I think some media, national media, probably didn't understand Harbor is part of UCLA. So I think they saw UCLA at one point and said, oh, he must have been transferred to Westwood. Harbor UCLA are the same facility. So that was a lie. But the biggest one is that Tiger didn't want his kids to visit him at the hospital. Look, in non-pandemic times, kids have restrictions about who they can visit, especially if there's an open wound. In pandemic times, nobody can visit anybody. My mom broke her hip a few weeks back. I dropped her off at the emergency room. I wasn't the treating orthopedic surgeon. I couldn't go visit her in the hospital. Uh, so I just advocate for more truth in media. And, and there are times that I get things wrong and I try and admit it, but I do it from afar on the outside and I don't report things as facts. And the final thing I'll say about uh, Tiger that I think it's a misconception out there. There are some out there that say that uh, they're still like making the assumption that perhaps uh, he will, uh, you know, there's a tox screen coming. There's not a tox screen coming for several reasons. Look, first of all, someone should be presumed innocent, even though he's had a previous history of some issues. And um, I'm not trying to defend Tiger or accuse Tiger. I'm just telling there's not gonna be a talk screen coming. Why? Um, when you're trapped in a car and you utilize jaws of life to extract them in a crush injury like in Tiger's situation. And I verified this with a fire chief battalion, uh, battalion chief. That he basically said, very high chance um, that they got a patient, a victim would get medication, uh, morphine or something like that prior to the extraction. Why? Number one, they're in a lot of pain and it's compassionate. Number two, you want to keep them calm during the extraction process. Number three, when they are freed, the limb in Tiger's case is dangling there. There's no way to support it immediately. And it's quite painful. So it is the compassion and right medical thing to do in those circumstances for the paramedic to administer some medication. Once they administer medication, whether the sheriff or police wants blood or not, and by the way, it's routine when you get to the hospital to get a tox screen anytime there's a car accident, that tox screen becomes invalid. 
it's a sample that's been quote legally considered tampered with. So we're not going to find out any tox screen results. That's going to stay within the bounds of HIPAA for Tiger. I'm not saying Tiger's getting away with taking medications or being on or being drunk or anything like that. Not at all. I'm just saying we're not going to get any tox screen results either for exoneration or uh, making him liable in some way because that sample's been tampered with, quote, so to speak, legally tampered with, properly tampered with. And yes, you're asking yourself, well, what difference does it make if he has a high blood alcohol content and he got morphine? Well, tampered is tampered and uh, it doesn't have to be morphine uh, metabolites. If he had other drugs in his system unrelated, bottom line is you can't rely on that test from a legal perspective. And once again, I want to be clear, I'm not accusing Tiger of, you know, having done anything. I'm just trying to clear things up in the media. So finally here, let's get to what happened here. And since there's no football, but there's a lot of other sports, we'll talk about what happened here. And, uh, and this might be a beast of the week as well. But don't um, look away. Look away if you're a little squeamish, especially guys. So some of you may have seen this, but here is Alexander Ovechkin against Travis Frederick with the little <laughs> stick to the groin. And I think we all jump a little bit there. Uh, obviously, who can blame Travis Frederick for going down? And I'm not trying to comment legally legal, who's right, who's wrong, but the bottom line is, thankfully, unlike football players, hockey players wear cups. Can you imagine a puck hitting you in, uh, in the testicles? I mean, that would be extremely traumatic. Obviously, this stick without a cup would be very much more painful than, than what it looks like. But thankfully, they do wear cups. And part of it, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Look, I haven't played hockey. My understanding is the cups are different than in other sports, smaller. And so you end up getting what's called a nut concussion. Uh, just like a helmet, does a, a helmet prevents skull fractures very well, but it doesn't prevent concussions. A cup prevents losing your testicles and, and they're exploding from trauma. And you can imagine even that stick or any puck would do that, but it doesn't stop the concussion effect or in a nut concussion, et cetera. So still quite painful there. Anyways, uh, lots to talk about, could go on for a long time. We'll keep it to, to our usual 20, 25 minutes per segment. Thanks for watching the Pro Football Doc podcast. We're gonna start some new videos during the week on the YouTube, et cetera. Uh, instead of, uh, I think people like the uh, video articles as opposed to written articles. Always lots to talk about. Special thanks again to FanDuel and uh, John Sheeran, who is our guest this week. And uh, thanks for watching the Pro Football Doc podcast.